0: Welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional's podcast on all things law and tax, with me, Rachel Sherlock and also gronya McMahon. Today we are sitting down with Alan McGee, a solicitor and personal insolvency practitioner and author of Personal Insolvency Law in Ireland, which has been recently published by Bloomsbury Professional. Based in Cork, Alan is the current chairperson of the Association of Personal Insolvency Practitioners, and he joins us today to talk about insolvency law, notable judgments, and his previous career in the Defence Forces. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast, Alan. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: No problem. It's a pleasure to join you on this, actually. Thank you.
0: So I think, first of all, congratulations are in order. Your new book, Personal Insolvency Law, is out now. Can you tell me a bit about the book?
1: Yeah, the the book was written to, I suppose, address the knowledge gap in the in respect to jurisprudence in personal insolvency law, which would assist practitioners and legal practitioners in understanding the law. I suppose up to this point, the only publications about Irish personal insolvency law were annotated books explaining the Personal Insolvency Act. And the legislation and the jurisprudence has moved on since then and it hasn't been examined or explained in detail by way of any reference book which deals with the legal and practical issues that have arisen in since the act was introduced in twenty twelve. So when I sat down to write the book, I considered from what perspective I should approach it as both a solicitor and a personal insolvency practitioner. I appreciated that there are differing approaches to the subject. I sought to combine the approaches into one book that would assist personal insolvency practitioners in developing arrangements while also assisting legal practitioners in understanding the law. The book, as it is written, is set out to give an overview of the insolvency service of Ireland and the solutions that are available by way of a debt relief notice and a debt settlement arrangement, which are two of the solutions that aren't dealt with in depth in court jurisprudence. The third solution, which is the personal insolvency arrangements, is the area with the most high court jurisprudence. And that in turn will guide how the practitioner will deal with the debt settlement arrangements and the debt relief notices.
0: Mm, And I think you've touched on it just a little bit there, but could you go into maybe where the idea of the book came from and did you enjoy writing it?
1: Well, as I said, the the idea of the book came from the lack of any other publication dealing with the area. As I've been involved in personal insolvency, both as a solicitor and a personal insolvency practitioner since the introduction of the legislation, I had a fair idea or an in-depth knowledge into the workings of it, both from a legal and a PIP point of view And so during the COVID lockdown, I got the idea of writing the book and I've been working on it since.
0: Yeah, the the, the COVID lockdown has has been a a time for people to kind of reflect on, on what they want to write about. We've certainly found that from our end. And was there any parts of the process that were kind of particularly difficult?
1: I suppose the most difficult part of the process was getting my head around how to structure the book, as I'd never embarked on anything like this before. And This was particularly relevant as the legislation provides for three solutions, as I said, while most jurisprudence was in respect of one solution only. And because of this, I had to decide how to structure the book and how to deal with this. So I found that challenging. All right.
2: Alan, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, The law has changed an awful lot um, in personal insolvency over the last number of years. Would you mind giving us a little overview of what those developments have been?
1: Yeah, no problem. I suppose we're going back to when the law was introduced, there was an effective veto for banks as there was no appeal mechanism where a majority creditor or a sole creditor voted against an arrangement. And this caused the process to have a slow take up initially. However, the introduction of the amending legislation in 2015 kickstarted the whole process and introduced a court appeal mechanism. The introduction of this court appeal mechanism has opened up the appeal process to the High Court, which has in turn allowed for the development of the process and allowed for solutions to be expanded even far wider than what was envisaged.
2: And Alan, there has been a substantial body of High Court jurisprudence since legislative amendments arising in the main, I suppose, from the introduction of the Section One Hundred and Five application procedure. And that was established under the 2015 Amendment Act, would you mind um, talking us through some of those cases?
1: Well, at the moment, there are over 60 written High Court judgments which practitioners can rely upon. And this all started with the first case of Rio O'Connor in 2016, where I was the solicitor on record for the pip And that was the first case time the High Court granted an order under Section 115A of the Act approving an arrangement which has been rejected at a creditor's meeting. The judgments that have been delivered since have been both in favor of the PIAs that have been proposed or have rejected them, but they have developed the law so that practitioners have a better understanding of what can and can't be done.
0: And can you talk us through some of the key findings now from a few significant cases? Maybe we can start with um, ReJD, which I think was important in establishing that one party can restore themselves to solvency without the involvement of a co-borrower.
1: Yes, that's right. This case was, um, was, I think, a seminal case, and it developed the personal solvency process. In enabling debtors to resolve their personal insolvency without the participating uh, or the participation of a refusing co-borrower or a core borrower whose whereabouts are unknown as legal practitioners or accountants will be aware it has proven difficult in the past to negotiate with credit institutions on behalf of one party to the debt if the other party has not been engaging also this was because the banks were fearful of the implications of the civil liability act And that was dealt with in this case in REJD in the judgment where Judge Baker said that essentially a person participating in a formal PIA that this would trump the Civil Liability Act and allow the debtor to propose a PIA on their own without the other party. So that has been a very important decision and has allowed people who were in limbo heretofore to Find a solution for themselves.
0: Mm, thanks very much for that. And I also wanted to ask about reparking. Was that also important?
1: Parking was important because this was a case where, uh, without going into too much of the the thing of uh, the details in it, but it was the secured debt was three hundred and thirty three thousand, and the market value was one hundred and sixty thousand, and it was proposed that the debt would be written down to the market value, whereas the bank wanted the balance of the debt to be warehoused. The PiP rejected that offer, and the case was appealed to the High Court and The following points were dealt with in the High Court, which was that in order to appeal case, you have to have the support of a class of creditor and in this case, Mr. Justice MacDonald held that the unsecured creditor who held one point one percent of the debt at three thousand eight hundred euro was. Suitable as a supporting creditor because the debt was not unsubstantial as it equated to one month's debt for one month's income for the debtor. Prior to this, a supporting creditor of 1% was considered too small to meet the, the requirements. So that was important from that point of view. As I said in the introduction to this, the warehousing was an element of this, and the court decided that warehousing per se, is not contrary to the Act, but that warehousing is not appropriate in circumstances where it crystallizes a large debt at the date of retirement and where the debt has the capacity to make the debtor insolvent at that stage. So essentially warehousing can be done, but there has to be a manner or a visible means by which the debt can be repaid without the necessity for a sale of the house. And the court also considered future income in this case, and it commented that it wasn't appropriate for practitioners to overlook expected salary increases or pension entitlements, and that the practitioner needs to set out what the entitlement of a debtor over a six-year term would be. So that put some more uh, onus on the PIP in developing their proposals. The case also dealt with college costs and third-level children. Prior to this, some of the institutions would refuse to provide for any allowance for a child over 18 and in this case the high court approved the PIA which provided for a monthly allowance of 549 euro for a third level child and this figure was arrived at as it's what the official assignee would allow a debtor in bankruptcy with a third level child and interestingly enough mr just Macdonald in this case commented that the debtor would be doing very well if he could manage to keep his child's monthly college costs down to 550 euro. And he also noted that it's not always certain that parents would stop supporting the child at 23. And there were cases where a child would stay in college after 23 and would need support. One of the other areas in this case then that also came into play was pension entitlements. And the court expressed the view that there was an obligation on a debtor to disclose in their PFS any pension arrangements. The court also expressed a view in the judgment that pensions that are not accessible within the period of a PIA cannot be considered in an arrangement. And this was subsequently reaffirmed by Mr. Justice Sanfee in a later case in Reef Fitzpatrick. So the Act provides that a pension that's not accessible within seven years of a personal insolent arrangement commencing, that pension remains outside of the uh, reach of creditors, so that's an important one for anybody who is considering entering into insolvency process and who has a, a pension, whether they're nearing pension age or are away from it. The case dealt with the write down. I suppose it, this was important from an insolvency practitioner's point of view that the court put out a marker that it was not acceptable that a proposal would write down debt to current market value for no explained reason and any write-down should be based on individual circumstances, and that to simply write down to market value of the property arbitrarily would be incorrect. And this w- was a decision that followed an earlier high court decision in Laura Sweeney, where the court held that the appropriate write-down figure is to be assessed in light of the repayment capacity mm-hmm. of the debtor. And in this case, the court commented that the CMV was a floor to which debt could be written down to, but not a ceiling. So it's not a target. It is very much the bottom uh, level that you can write down to. So that was the the decision of the parking case, which covered many different areas in the one judgment.
2: Thanks, Alan. That case seems pretty significant. I mean, there's a, it's dealt with an awful lot of things. There a lot, an awful lot of issues. Um, the pension issue seems incredibly significant i mean as a practitioner yourself what did you make of that decision
1: i found this decision it was extremely useful and uh helps guide how we will advise debtors when they come into us uh in how to structure their approach to a an insolvency arrangement it's very much a case that if a debtor has a large pension pot that will become accessible warehousing maybe may be appropriate but if they have no uh pension that's accessible warehousing may not be appropriate uh likewise if future income is there and people are on a an incremental salary scale then a six-year arrangement may be appropriate whereas if they're not on an incremental salary scale a shorter pia could be required Likewise, the costs for children, this was uh, an important decision because, as I said earlier, some of the banks were refusing outright to uh, provide for any third-level child going to college. And even after this, some of the banks still refused. And it wasn't until the decision in Quirk by Mr. Justice Anthony that reaffirmed and chastised one certain bank for not Providing for third level college children, so it's important from that in that it gave a good grounding for practitioners in considering how to develop an insolvency arrangement.
2: Super. Um, we've also had the case of Re Keith Kremen, and that I know dealt with a number of issues, but one of those was when when someone comes into you, Alan, and um, looking to enter into PIA will they reasonably be likely to be able to comply with the terms of a proposed arrangement down the line? And that's something that, that really should be considered and I think that the court made reference to that in that case. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, the Kremen case was a, was an interesting case in that it was a case that had both mortgage debt that was previously restructured and judgment mortgage debts. The case was instrumental in the in dealing with the relevant debt issue because in order to bring an appeal you have to have what's known as a relevant debt which is a debt that is secured on the property and is in arrears and the court held that a judgment mortgage debt was a, was a relevant debt even if it was going to be written off in the PIA so that was important from that point of view and then the court considered the affordability and sustainability issues and in this case the PIA proposed a repayment of 859 a month which was more than the debtor had been paying to date and the judge considered all the evidence that was placed before the court namely that the family were deeply involved in the local community so a move out of the local community wouldn't be appropriate that the debtor was committed to making the arrangement work as appeared from his affidavit evidence and that they had third-party support from family in in case of unforeseen events. And the judge was satisfied that given the level of evidence put before him that ultimately the family would, with vigilance and in managing their finances, be able to reasonably comply with the terms So from that point of view, the the judgment uh, went in the favor of the debtor. However, there was a twist in the judgment in that the judge then considered the appropriateness of the PIA. And while he had found in favor of the debtor in respect of the relevant debt and the likelihood of maintenance of the PIA payments, the judge then looked at the appropriateness of it and he decided that the mortgage debt was not a debt that was putting the family under pressure as it had been previously restructured and that their difficulty arose in respect of the future calling in of the warehouse debt and their inability to discharge it at that point in time. And the judge believed that had the debtor engaged with the creditor prior to this, that the creditor may have come to an arrangement with them and so that the PIA, therefore, was not appropriate and he refused the appeal.
2: Typically, when a client comes in to you seeking to undergo this process, what I, I, I suppose for practitioners that may come across these issues, what are the key things that they should look out for? Would you mind briefly explaining that to us in terms of if you're looking at, say, there's judgment mortgages, there's children involved, there's pensions uh, affordability, affordability factors, all of those things. I, I wonder if you could give us a little outline of those.
1: What I would say to a legal practitioner is somebody comes in uh, with these issues is that if they're not familiar with the process themselves is that they they should refer the pe- the person on to uh, an insolvency practitioner. There is a scheme there under the Owalia scheme that provides for a voucher to meet with a pip for people who are in mortgage difficulties and so the uh, the advice should be free to the debtor if they are the subject of repossession proceedings or the threats of it so in those instances the the legal practitioner will be able to get the person the advice that's needed without any cost to the debtor and it may then save the legal practitioner having to go forward and engage in repossession proceedings and defending them if the matter can be resolved much quicker through an insolvency arrangement.
2: Brilliant. Um I think that's that's very useful advice uh, for any practitioner. Um interest rates very topical at the moment, always in the headlines of late and I think we're all very conscious of the rising interest rates especially with the cost of living crisis. But this was dealt with in the case of Re Hayes and there was a proposal there, I believe, uh, to fix the interest rate. Could you tell us a little bit about how the court dealt with that issue, Alan?
1: Yeah, and as you say, it's of particular relevance at, the, at this point in time where there are rising interest rates and there's a lot of public discussion on the failure of funds to offer fixed rates to customers whose loans were sold to the funds. And I think there may be even uh, private members Bills has been uh, filed in the actus in respect of this. But the case of the issue of fixing of interest rates was dealt with in a case of Hayes, where the PIA proposed the fixing of the interest rate at 3.65% over 27 years. And the objecting creditor in that case described this as completely unheard of in banking practice and argued that it was unfairly prejudicial within the meaning of the legislation and Miss Justice Baker decided that the legislation did permit a provision for interest-only payments, for interest and part capital payments or a deferral of mortgage payments for a period of time not in excess of the period of the PIA. However, she said that no such limitation was placed on a proposal to fix an interest rate or track it to another identifiable rate. And accordingly, she held that the statute permits interest rates may be fixed or variable or linked, and the legislation does not limit the period of time which this can be done. So arising from that decision, it is now possible to fix interest rates for the period of uh, the lifetime of the mortgage. And I recently had a case with Pepper, where we fixed the interest rate at 1% for the 30 years of the PIA in order to provide certainty uh, of repayments for the debtor over that period.
0: I, I also wanted to ask about Rio O'Connor. I think you've mentioned it already, but just that one was of interest and you were involved in it. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, Rio O'Connor, that was the very first High Court case back in 2016. And Uh, I was the the solicitor in that one. And that that case was important simply from the point of view that it established that appeal mechanism is available and cases can be overturned. The case was actually unopposed when it went to the High Court and Ms. Justice Baker made an order granting the the PIA.
2: Alan, typically when these cases come before the court... I mean, the court is going to look at a number of factors, but one of those is obviously going to be an applicant's payment history. How, how deeply does the court look at that? Or could you maybe give us some guidance for practitioners who may come come up across this?
1: What I would say in this is that payment history is extremely important. And the case of Federson dealt with this in the High Court where the court held that it was entitled to make an order coming confirming coming into the effect of a PIA, even where the debtor's payment history is poor. However, Mr. Justin MacDonald did say that there was an obligation on a debtor to explain a poor payment history. Notwithstanding that, in, in this case, while the debtor's explanation was insufficient, it still wasn't a bar to being granted the PIA in the court's eyes, and that the judge did make an order coming into the effect of the PIA. The one thing, though, that does come from this is that a debtor who has got a poor payment history prior to meeting the PIP should take steps to recover that uh, situation and to make payments from the moment they meet with the PIP. And that then will overcome the poor payment history or will help to overcome the poor payment history. And it's quite often that poor payment history is based on poor advice and that the person had the ability to pay or were just managing their funds poorly and there was an ability to pay more. And a PIP after the first meeting will explain this to a debtor and will encourage the debtor then to start making payments at a level that's affordable to them.
2: When it comes to family law proceedings, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you come across those quite often, you, you may have a couple who did not repay the mortgage for a number of years and then one of them decides as part of the legal proceedings in relation to family law proceedings that they, they wish to address the debt and and try and resolve matters. How has the court dealt with those type of matters? Will, As you said, if you go to a PIP and then you may start paying some of the mortgage, will that Generally, tend to count as that you you have started in, improving. I suppose your payment history.
1: Yes, when somebody comes into us in a situation where they have been in a relationship breakdown, whether it's inside or outside of marriage, and there was two parties to the debt and maybe two parties on title to the property, and only one person is participating, the PIP will guide the debtor along, having regard to decision JD. So. The starting point is that a PIA is possible. So on that basis then the PIP will assess the engaging borrowers uh situation in respect of income and expenses, taking regard hopefully for maintenance and, and that as income and generate a PIA that can keep that person in the home. So uh yet if you are in the family law courts and there's a threat of repossession or there's uh, a threat or a desire from one party to sell a home or something like that, you can use a PIA to try and strengthen your position by showing the court that you've engaged with the bank and that you have come to an arrangement and you're seeking to, to deal with the debts. And there are many cases there that I've done and other PIPs have done where we've done that and relied on the case of JD and we're able to take, to take cases out of the repossession courts and have one party remaining in the home responsible for the mortgage.
0: And how has the court dealt with luxury
1: properties? The I suppose the case that deals with that is the Newsom case. And that was a case where the debtors had a, a substantial home that was in substantial equity. And the judge said it wasn't in their interest to retain that where doing so placed a significant financial burden on them to maintain the payments and that it was more realistic for all that the house would be sold and that they could downsize and live mortgage-free in a reasonably good standard home given the equity that was in the house. So generally, uh, most of the houses that are the subject of PIAs wouldn't be what's known as the trophy home or the luxury property but where they are there has to be a a very strong reason for retaining them where there is enough equity to enable a trade down and the discharge of of the debt if that debt can't be serviced.
2: Alan um, we've seen quite a lot of judgments of late headlines that massive sums of of debt have been written off in court proceedings i suppose a number of years ago we may not have seen the likes of this so has the court's approach changed or what do you make of these cases
1: i suppose a lot of these cases that are reported are cases that have been approved by creditors at a creditor's meeting and are such unopposed rulings the high court unlike the circuit court has asked that the cases be opened up to the court for approval uh, by way of a counsel attending at the court and opening the case for the approvals. And this was a practice that was introduced by Mr. Justice MacDonald. It wasn't there in Mr. Justice Baker's time. But these are uncontentious, and the reporting is somewhat quite detailed from what I have actually seen opened in court. My own preference is to try and preserve a person's privacy where possible. I know in one case, I was in Uh, where I was the pip early on a number of years ago and and the case was reported, the debtor said to me that they didn't have any difficulty with it personally, but their children got grief in the schoolyard over it. And that's resonated with me. So while the write downs may be eye-watering at times, the net result is the same as for a person who enters the process with much smaller debts that are similarly unmanageable. And in the end, the debtor may or may not keep their home They'll have to live to the RLEs and their debts will be discharged either by way of a lump sum or by way of monthly payments over a set period of time. Personally, I don't think it helps the process. I gave advice to a debtor just the other day and I got an email this morning where they had read in the paper of the publicity surrounding a write down that that was granted by the courts yesterday. And this person was reluctant now to enter into the process because they didn't want the publicity attendant to it. So I think it doesn't assist the process. I think it's, it's a bit of sensationalism, but it is what it is at the moment, unfortunately.
0: You You mentioned not being totally satisfied with how that's going. Is there any, if you could make any change to personal insolvency law in Ireland, what would it be?
1: Well, if I was making changes, I suppose the small changes I would make would be I'd remove the three million secured debt threshold. At the moment, if your secured debts are above three million, you need the consent of all your creditors to enter into a PIA. Uh, I think that's a that's a barrier for some debtors to enter into it, and these people are being left in limbo since the last crash because of that. So I would get rid of that. The court review process, the timeline for creditor objections, the debtor has a strict 28-day timeline to lodge an appeal and if you lodge your appeal on the 29th day you're out whereas a creditor has 14 days to lodge their appeal but in a decision in Varma that i was the solicitor in the high court held that you can actually apply right up to the date of the hearing for permission to lodge an objection out of time And I believe that's unfair. And the the timeline should be strict on the creditor as it is on the debtor. Other small changes, there's a requirement to and the eligibility criteria that the debtor must cooperate under the mark process. But at this stage in the cycle of the debtors we're dealing with, many of them have not had the capacity or the ability to engage with the creditor heretofore and have been inside in the repossession courts. And I think that this eligibility criterion should be disposed of, uh, so allow these people uh, enter into the process easier. And if I was looking for more substantial changes, I would look for the Act to be amended to allow for re-entry of a PIA before the court where there is non-compliance by a creditor with the terms of the PIA. There is provision in the act for re-entry of a case where a debtor is not performing his obligations, but there's nothing in there in for a creditor who hasn't performed their obligations. And with a lot of the recent debt sales, this has been a problem and there's no obvious solution to it. And I suppose the other one or two that I'd look at would be the legislation doesn't allow for the court to make any amendments to uh, a pia that comes before it on appeal and that's that's a weakness in the legislation i would say and that it would be it would help the process if the court could identify areas where an appeal could be resolved and send the matter back for voting at a creditors meeting i think that would assist the process and i'd I suppose one other area I would look at would be that of the excludable creditor category. The Act provides for certain categories of uh, creditors and one of them is the excludable creditor which includes revenue and the Department of Social Protection, local authorities' rates and household charges, health service executive and management company uh, fees. And while revenue I must say, have have very have adopted a very pragmatic approach to personal insolvency. The Department of Social Protection, in particular, have rejected all approaches to engage with the process. And if this excludable debt creditor category was removed, they would be forced to take part in it and wouldn't be able to stay outside it. So, they'd be the changes that I would suggest.
2: They sound very practical, Alan. As a practitioner, do you come across mistakes in relation to debt matters? And if so, what are the errors that are being made in the area?
1: I suppose the biggest problem I come across is where debtors come to us and they've received advice from legal practitioners and others not to pay their mortgage. And I referred to this earlier in the podcast. This is without doubt the biggest mistake made as the courts take a dim view of those who have an ability to pay and yet do not make the payments. And in some cases, insolvency practitioners have given the same advice, and this has caused PIAs to be rejected by creditors and by the courts on appeal. So that, I suppose, is the main one. Don't stop paying, even if there is a repossession order in place. Continue to make some payments to the best of your ability, and you have some chance then of making a proposal by way of a PIA.
0: Could you give us some specific examples of where things have gone badly wrong for practitioners because of a mistake?
1: Well, I suppose the uh, area I'd look at there would be the failure of PIPs to provide or to verify income and assets correctly is an issue that creates difficulties for PIPs. And this has led to the High Court criticism of PIPs and where This failure has been egregious. It may result in an award of costs against a debtor, which has happened in the courts. So uh, it's important that income is properly verified, assets are checked, and any extra expenses are properly vouched. Because that's the the basis on which the PIA is, is developed on, and that has to be properly vouched to creditors.
2: Alan, what is it about this area of law that you enjoy so much?
1: I suppose um there is a there's a satisfaction to be gained in a successful outcome where people's homes were at risk or people were in dire straits over debt issues and you can resolve that for them and keep their home for them and their families. That's a that's a big area you get satisfaction out of out of that. And I also enjoy I suppose, expanding the boundaries of it, where, as I say, I'm utilizing the the family law element together with the personal insolvency. And that's set out in the book there. There's a chapter on that in the book that shows how we can use the various solutions available in in insolvency together with the family law, because as practitioners will be aware, Family law can split title, but it can't split debt. Personal insolvency can split debt, but it can't split title. So, if we use the two of them in tandem, we can achieve solutions that are not available in one area on its own. So, that's that's an an area that I like to expand the legislation into.
0: That's wonderful, and you know, for someone who's so invested in this area, you've actually had quite a varied career. So, my last question for you before we move on to the the lighter questions was just that, you know, before moving into law, I believe you were in the Defence Forces. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I can imagine it was quite a different way of life.
1: Yeah, uh, I spent 14 years in the, in the Army. I retired out as a, a captain and it was a great life. I really enjoyed it. It takes a young school kid uh, who was a bit wet behind the ears and dresses them down and makes them grow up a bit into what was hopefully a responsible adult. But yeah, you develop fantastic friends and great camaraderie I still have with all my classmates from the cadet school. And I suppose I was there when there were perks to it. We were all sent to college. So I did my primary degree in uh, Galway in university college Galway and then studied law by night thereafter. And I did four trips overseas. I was in Lebanon twice. I was an unarmed military observer in East Timor. And then I was on the, the first mission into Liberia. So I got a good experience on how the other less fortunate people in the world are surviving. And I've seen the effects of conflict and it shows how lucky we are here in Ireland and you see the conflict that's going on in other parts of the world at the moment and you get to understand that we're not living in that bad a country.
0: Yeah really fascinating perspective. Thank you so much for that and so to just close out our episode I've got a couple of our lighter questions so to begin with um, what book are you currently reading?
1: None, I don't have time. I only read books really on holidays when I (laughs) might have a thriller or something like that to read to switch off but during the working year, I wouldn't have time, no.
0: Well, then for my second question, do you have a favourite book then?
1: Um, nothing in particular. I'd read, as I said, I'd read a trailer from any all of the Ludlum books, Tom Clancy, Wilbur Smith, Bernard Cornwell, any of those writers. It's just something that I could sit down and switch off with.
0: Well, you mentioned you, you maybe get some reading done on holiday. So then I guess if you're on a desert island, what are the three things that you would bring?
1: Food bottle of Middleton Rare <laughs> and a boat so I could leave.
0: <laughs> Excellent. What do you like to do outside of work?
1: A sport is, is my passion for recreation and um, I'm heavily involved with Black Rock Hurling and Camogie Club here where I'm involved in coaching and the administration side of stuff there so that's uh, any sport other as well like but predominantly hurling.
0: Fantastic. And then finally, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be?
1: Still be an army officer, I think. (laughs)
0: Excellent. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on our episode today.
1: No problems at all. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Alan. That was absolutely fantastic. That's it for another episode of Obiter Dicta. Alan McGee's book, Personal Insolvency Law in Ireland, is now available to purchase on bloomsburyprofessional.com. Thanks to Alan for joining us and see you next time.